Corey, good to see you. Hey, good to see yeah. you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be in person. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're uh, we we measured this, and it's precisely six feet, and and we actually had Dr. Fauci come in and certify that everything was cool. Totally, you got to listen to to Fauci. I mean, if we really want to listen to Fauci, we should. Uh, allow people to go back to schools for in-person instruction because even Fauci is now saying that uh, children are not uh, high transmitters of the virus and and that school reopenings aren't leading to significant transmission in the community. I've wanted to have you on uh, ever since I started this show, but um, a tweet that you just sent out about, uh, I believe it was was a Chicago uh, teachers union representative who was saying... Um, essentially, I'll paraphrase, forget the science, we're not going back to work. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, well, the the Chicago Teachers Union has been doing a lot of this stuff over the past couple of months, uh, fighting against going back to in-person instruction. And what's interesting to me is the stark contrast that you see from the private sector as you see from the public sector and the teachers unions. The private schools and private businesses, grocery stores, Uh, daycare centers and restaurants. They've either been open for a long time already or they're fighting really hard against the government from preventing them to reopen, whereas so many public schools and teachers unions are fighting for the opposite. They're fighting to remain closed. And I think the main difference there is is one of incentives, that one of these sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. Yeah, I, I totally want a job that is always fully funded and yet I don't ever have to go back to work. I, I don't know where to get one of those, but it would be cool. Yeah, it's a great deal. And, and I mean, the problem here is that we don't have school choice or something that I uh, like to talk about as funding the student as opposed to the institution or funding the students directly and allowing children's education dollars to follow them to wherever they're getting an education. In that scenario, we wouldn't have this whole national debate about whether all the schools should reopen or whether all the public schools should be closed because then each individual district can make whatever decision that they want and the employees can make their decisions about what they, whether they want to return to in-person working environments or not, but then families would have a choice too. I mean, just think about it this way. If your grocery store doesn't reopen, you can take your money elsewhere. If your neighborhood Walmart doesn't reopen, you could take your money to Trader Joe's. So it's not... It's an inconvenience, but it's not devastating. And so I similarly argue if your public school doesn't reopen, you should similarly be able to take your children's education dollars elsewhere. There was, um, I think you shared the data, and I've been trying to look uh, for a bright side in all of this lockdown mess over the last year. And I I was uh, very early on in March predicting um, a lot of the disruptions that we've seen. Um, I wasn't really thinking about education um, and how devastating that would be to families and children. But, but there's sort of a counter-revolution going on where parents have, for the first time perhaps, uh, been forced to, to look at curriculums, been forced to confront the reality that this is not a public school. This is a government school run by government employees who care more about themselves than my children. Yeah, and I want to hit on really quickly, I think you're correct to call them government-run schools rather than public schools because they're not really public in any meaningful sense of the word. They're not public goods. Uh, as evidenced by private schools existing, you can exclude non-payers, and pr- public schools currently do exclude a lot of people based on uh, residential assignment and zip code-based uh, uh, admissions policies. So they discriminate by zip code. They're not open to the public like a public park would be. Uh, and then also, I do think there's this kind of ref- revolution of thought that people are rethinking the how the K through 12 education system in general, but pr- pri- pri- primarily 
how we fund K through 12 education. So many public schools are not reopening. Families are less scrambling. And, and in some cases where the public schools are saying that they're going to reopen, it gets to the 11th hour. And then a few hours before the families are supposed to send their kids to school, they send out an email and saying, well, you, well, we have an employee problem. Not, not enough of the, of the employees are coming in. They do these sick outs. And so there are two recent surveys that suggest that families are rethinking this and that they're turning towards things like school choice programs or what I call funding students directly, where um, a real clear opinion research poll just found a 10 percentage point jump in support for these types of school choice initiatives just from since April alone. So that's a huge jump from 67% support to 77% uh, support. And then EdChoice also did a similar nationally representative poll finding that now 81% of families support funding students through an education savings account. And, and by the way, those polls usually show, and I believe these that you're citing do, that this is not a partisan shift at that both Democrats, Republicans, and independents are all trending away from just accepting the status quo. Yeah, it, 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 uh, majority support, regardless of the background of the participants in, in the survey. But then also, uh, I also want to add that EdChoice survey, just from last year, there have been huge jumps in any type of school choice that you can think of. So charter schools, private school voucher programs, tax credits, scholarships, and my favorite, education savings accounts, which is you're residentially assigned to this public school. If that doesn't work for you for whatever reason, if it does work, you could still choose that. But if not, a fraction of those dollars would follow the child to an education savings account. And you could use it for private school tuition and fees, but they can also use it on other education expenditures such as tutoring, textbooks, curriculum, micro schools, pandemic pods. So I think, I think that you're right that this is a special moment for the idea of educational freedom because families are looking at the system. They're seeing that they're getting a bad deal. They're seeing that they're getting the short end of the stick, and I think they're realizing that there's no good reason to fund institutions when you can fund the students directly instead. So I want to I talk about what uh, specifically parents can do to sort of liberate their kids and get them a place where, where they're, they're comfortable that they're learning and they're safe and, and they're not sort of pawns in this political game. But, but let's go back a little bit. I think, I think it's important to talk a little bit about what has happened to children over the last year as, as, as the government education system has been locked down? Because it, it seems like we're doing permanent damage, to, not just to their education, but you know, um, all of the things that would affect a child's development. Yeah, if you look at individual school districts, there's tons of data coming out that the rate of failure in particular classes is going up by a lot. For example, in Fairfax County Public Schools, the rate of failure of students failing two or more classes has increased by 83% since last year. And a nationwide analysis by McKinsey and Company uh, estimated that students are learning about one, lo losing about one to three months of learning this year. And then if you look at so many other individual school districts, there are even there are just huge uh, increases in the rates of failure. So f students are, are, are having problems academically, and there's some evidence to suggest that this is leading to more inequities. Students from less advantaged backgrounds are getting hit uh, the hardest from this and having the most challenges with uh, adapting. And I will say, for the families that do want in-person instruction, 
advantaged families are more likely at least to be able to seek out these alternatives such as pandemic pods or micro schools or be able to afford to pay for private school tuition and fees. It's the least advantaged who are kind of stuck with no choices at this moment. And that's another reason that I argue for funding the students directly, which would lead to more equity by allowing more families to access these alternatives at this time. And disadvantaged parents, it's sort of a double whammy because their their kids are suffering under the system, but they also likely are more more likely to need to work in order to pay the bills. Yeah, this is uh, hitting uh, single parent households, for example, uh, at a higher rate because uh, previously a lot of these families were relying on, and even two parent households or or other um, uh, households were relying on the in person child care services that were always provided by the traditional public school system. Uh, and it's just not happening this year. And just to give out another data point on this, um, national data reported by Axios actually found that about 5% of private schools were fully remote this past year, whereas about 62% of traditional public schools were fully remote. And then I also looked at data in San Diego County because they reported this for almost all of the schools. I think about 90% of the schools they reported the data, public and private. Only about 2% of the students in the public school system were, were experiencing in-person instruction, whereas about 55% of the private school students were experiencing in-person instruction. So we're seeing a huge difference uh, across sectors. You know, the, it, it's, it's so obvious to those of us that have looked at this stuff for a long time that um, the one-size-fits-all education system is incredibly regressive. And, and maybe that's why the data shows that there's across the board there is uh, um, bipartisan support for doing something different. But why don't these arguments work in Washington, D.C.? I think all the arguments are excellent for funding the students directly. I don't think there are any good arguments against it. But uh, it's, sadly, it's not only about the logic of your arguments. A lot of it has to do with power dynamics. And one thing that shows this um, problem is when you start thinking about other programs that already do fund students directly. Just think about it. When it comes to higher education, we have Pell Grants for low-income students, and we have the GI Bill for veterans. And when it comes to pre-K, we have uh, pre-K programs where the money goes to the family and families can choose public or private provider of the services. Just like with Pell Grants, you can choose a public or private university of your choosing. And a lot of the people who support funding students directly when it comes to higher education and pre-K, they get all up in arms when it comes to K-12 education. And the only difference that I can see is, again, the power dynamics differ. Choice is the norm when it comes to higher education and pre-K, but choice threatens a K-12 government monopoly when it comes to the K-12 education system. Uh, you talk about power dynamics, and they're in at least at the top of the pyramid in Washington, D.C. We are now into the new Biden administration, and I believe on his first day in office he came out with a COVID executive order that said, at least, we're going to reopen the schools, but it, it doesn't really do that. It what sounded, does it do? It sounded good at first, right? Yeah. Um, but then if you start reading more into it, he's calling, it's kind of a nod to the teachers union. 
Uh, it's uh, throwing billions and billions of more dollars into the system, even though we've already added more and more federal funding to the K-12 education system over the past year. We had the CARES Act, about $13 billion going to K-12 schools. We had the second stimulus bill, about $50 billion going to the uh, public school system at the K-12 level. And now he's proposing about $130 billion more to go through the K-12 public school system, which is close to the size of the Marshall Plan that the U.S. dedicated towards rebuilding Europe after World War II. So this is a ton of money, and it's coming from the federal government, which should have no role in K-12 public education, uh, uh, but here we are. Yeah, so it's it's $130 billion in dedicated funding to schools and $350 billion in state and local relief funds to help school districts close budget gaps. And again, to our initial point, they're getting $130 billion for not doing their jobs. Yeah, um, you know, when a, when a private school underperforms, it shuts down. When a public school underperforms, it gets rewarded with more money because they can always go back to the politicians and say, well, we, we're underperforming because we don't have enough money. And this was pointed out in a recent interview with, with Biden's national policy director, Steph Feldman, with the Education Writers Association. During that interview, um, the reporter asked them, what are, the, you know, what are their thoughts on charter schools? What are they going to do about it? And they said that they were going to defund charter schools that were, quote unquote, not providing results. And then when asked, what, what do you mean by that? They didn't really have an answer about what that meant by not providing results. But then later on during the interview, they said, well, what about the traditional public schools that don't provide results? Ah, oh, well, they need more money. They just don't have enough resources. But what's interesting is that charter schools typically on a per pupil basis get a lot less funding than the traditional public schools. My latest study on this out of the University of Arkansas across 18 different locations found that on average, the charter schools only received about two thirds of the funding of, uh, of the traditional public schools. Yeah, so in the the White House, you tweeted out a picture of the, the heads of the teachers' unions hanging out with uh, the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden. Um, there's a new sheriff in town. Yeah, um, it, it looks like uh, the priority is the unions uh, more so than the individual students. Yeah. My response to that, to one of those tweets was, well, well what about the students? Uh, it's a nod to the educators and more pre precisely the teachers' unions, which often don't advocate for policies that really do help individual teachers. I mean, just think about it. In the United States, between 1992 and 2014, on a national level, we've increased real inflation-adjusted per-pupil expenditure, education expenditures in the public school system by about 27 percent. But real teacher salaries actually dropped by 2% over the same time period. And so because we have this geographic monopoly public school system, we throw more and more money into the system year after year, decade after decade. But it doesn't go to the classrooms or the individual teachers. Most of it goes towards administrative bloat and staffing searches, surges, which is good for teachers unions because they get more political power in numbers and they get more union dues and revenues, which is, is great for the union bosses, not so much for the individual teachers. And one, one last thing, five studies that I know of on this topic finds that school choice competition through private schools or charter schools leads to higher teacher salaries in the public schools. And that's because the public schools start to scratch their heads a little bit and say, well, if we don't spend our money wisely, we're going to lose customers. And so they start to allocate their resources more efficiently. So school choice could also be a rising tide that lifts all boats yeah. that helps the public schools uh, uh, raise their game as well. It's, you know, I, I jokingly, it's a libertarian joke. I call it the education industrial complex, but 
it it probably is the wrong phrase because it actually has the word education in it. It's it's a machine or a system or what what's the word that you're using to describe the bureaucracy? Institutions yeah. or systems? Um, yeah, as opposed to funding the, the students. It's, it's sort of it's sort of an iron locked in political equilibrium where you know the the people in charge are are really don't have any reason to respond and i found a quote from from one of the uh from randy weingarten who's the head of the american federation of of teachers and it, it's it's so blatantly political and and kind of ridiculous but she's speaking of of biden's executive order including the 130 billion finally we have a president who is committed to doing what educators parents and students have yearned for since the first week of the pandemic, a real national plan to crush COVID that follows the science and secures the resources to make in-school learning safe. And that's all, um, it, it, as using a political science term, that's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, the, the in-school learning environments are already safe. Um, when it comes to K through 12 public schools, the, the schools are some of the lowest risk places and they're also one of the highest uh they're one of the the last places to reopen in person as long as 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 far as talking about the public schools not so much the private schools are more likely to reopen but if you look at statements by dr fauci the cdc director as well if you look at even uh bill de blasio and governor cuomo are saying that we're not seeing the spread in the schools if you look at data from brown university economist emily oster has been pointing out for months that the school positivity rate of the virus is much lower than the overall positivity rate, and so that schools aren't super spreaders and they can safely reopen. And look, we already spend tons and tons of money on the public schools here in D.C. They spend over $31,000 per child per year, and they're still not reopened for in-person instruction. It's more about an incentive thing than a funding thing. Yeah. You you mentioned before we went live that the the union representative from Chicago who was um, essentially saying, I don't really care what the science says we're not reopening, was actually doing that podcast from Puerto Rico or something? Yeah, there was a, a teachers union board member in Chicago, and she got a lot of pushback on this because, uh, you know, at one point during the day she was tweeting, and she has been tweeting this for a long time, that you know, we can't reopen schools for in-person instruction because that's too dangerous, even though most of the science shows. And here's another data point. I gave you enough already. If you, but in case you're not convinced, uh, you listeners, the UNICEF, the United Nations, uh, actually put out a study showing no consistent link between reopening schools and the spread of the virus, looking at 191 different countries. But this particular example, yes, there was a person coming out saying, oh, we can't go back to work because it's not safe. But then they were caught tweeting from from a poolside in Puerto Rico. So a lot of people thought that that was hypocritical because they were saying, well, if, if it's safe enough to vacation in person, why isn't it safe enough to work in person? Especially when going on vacation requires you to travel, uh, whereas working, you, you would just stay in your same <laughs> Uh, location in Chicago. Well, the problem is if you reopen the schools in Chicago, she probably couldn't be poolside in Puerto Rico, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the problems. And I don't like the question people's motives. I always say this is about incentives. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of people would be more likely to do that if they were in her situation and, and had the power that she has and that she, she would understand that she could still get paid while vacationing or, or, or teaching, at least teaching remotely 
through through the laptop. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to blame them, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like I like I said, it'd be a good job if you could get it. It just happens to be really bad for parents and children. Exactly. And another phone you know, ridiculous example of this over the past few months. I'm sure you've seen it is that a lot of the school districts were saying, ah, oh, it's too dangerous to open for in-person instruction. Um, so we're going to do the remote only learning. And, but we're, we are going to open the elementary schools, the same schools for daycare services. And so what you had, so the schools weren't o- safe enough for in-person learning, but they were safe enough for in-person childcare services as if learning causes uh, things to be more dangerous. It just didn't make any sense. And so I started looking more into this and I started to figure out that what these districts were doing was opening those same places. The teachers were staying at home because they were still getting paid through the compulsory property tax system. But then they had private sector employees coming into the same elementary schools from the YMCA and other uh, child care sectors to provide that in-person services to the child. And so that was great for the employees. The private sector was was making some money off of it. The public sector was still getting paid through the tax system. But it's horrible for families because then they were having to pay twice. They were having to pay out of pocket for these private sector employees to do the same thing that the public sector employees should have been doing all along and, and had been doing any other year. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's essentially a form of extortion. Yeah. Families are stuck paying twice. And, and back to that point, a very regressive form of extortion because – the very parents that can't afford daycare were being forced to pay for daycare so that they could do the jobs that they were doing before the school system was locked down. Yeah, and in some places it did work out to being about double what they would have paid uh, for the school system overall any other year. Yeah, uh, paying up to you know four hundred dollars a week uh, per student in some in some school districts, and this was widespread. The first place I saw it was in Gilbert, Arizona, and I was like, "You got to be kidding me." Uh, this this seems unconstitutional because each state constitution says at least that the state needs to provide a system of public schools or public education. And usually any other year you would think of public schooling as being an in-person experience. And so they can't really say that they're providing that if they're if if they're not providing the in-person services. But then two, each state constitution says that it has to be taxpayer funded or free. Um, and so they really can't say that they're doing that if they're charging the families out of pocket in addition to what they're paying through property taxes. Yeah. So you, um, you and I and everybody I know that, that cares about education policy have been talking about some form of school choice, uh, allowing the money to follow the children and the parents instead of feeding the system. Um, but certainly at the federal level, I suppose it is a particularly hostile environment for that idea now. And it strikes me that, that the machine has, has generally won that fight. Why would we be optimistic that we can change the system? Yeah. So one, I want to say that even when Trump was in office and had Betsy DeVos as the education secretary and she supported school choice wholeheartedly, we didn't see a lot of progress on that uh, because of the split. Uh, Congress, um, you know, you got to get things passed, and the Democrats uh, held the is, House. Is there a federal fix to school choice? I know we've debated that as well. Well, she she was pushing pushing forward the School Choice Now Act. Rand Paul had the School Act. They were all a little different, but forms of school choice allowing the funding to follow the child. I liked Rand Paul's because uh, it was taking all the existing federal education funding that already is allocated to public schools, and then giving the families the choice to 
take that to another school if they'd like or to keep having the money go to the same school. So uh, incrementally, that's a reform towards more freedom and reducing federal involvement. Uh, Betsy DeVos had a, had a different uh, proposal, the School Choice Now Act, which was similar, but it was funded privately through a tax credit uh, mechanism. And each individual state had the choice of whether to, to participate in that, but it didn't get passed because of that split Congress. But um, there are, at the same time, there wasn't re a reduction to educational freedom while Betsy DeVos was the education secretary. We could see a reduction in educational freedom at, at the federal level with uh, the new administration. As I uh, alluded to earlier, they're talking about defunding charter schools if they don't do this, that, or the other. For example, they want to defund, at least at the federal level, the for-profit charter schools, which I have no problem with a charter school being for profit. What I do have a problem with is an institution profiting from getting your children's education dollars because of their monopoly power. That's more so the traditional public school system. And by the way, only about 12% of charter schools are, are late are managed by for profit entities. But then also they, they talk about, Oh, you got to have a school board or we're going to take your federal funding away. So there's a lot of things that they can do to reduce the amount of funding going to charter schools where other types of school choice options. They could also try to get rid of the D.C. voucher program. That's a federal district uh, serving low-income families here in D.C. that they could uh, uh, do a lot of damage to that program. But I do have optimism for school choice going forward, and I've actually floated the idea that 2021 could be the year of school choice because of what you talked about earlier, people are seeing that there's no good reason to fund the system when you can fund the students directly. And just in the last month alone, in January, about 12 different states, legislators have pro uh, proposed legislation uh, to fund the students directly. Uh, so you got states like Iowa, Nebraska, um, Arizona, uh, Florida has a school choice bill as well. Um, Washington and Oregon as well, uh, Virginia. So a lot of these different states and I'm thinking that this is the time is ripe for uh, advocating these types of policies, especially when people are seeing that the public school system just isn't there for them and hasn't been uh, over the past few months. Do you, so you you think the opportunities at the state level, and, and most school choice efforts traditionally have been at the state and local level. Yeah, the only DC uh, the the only uh, federal school choice program is the DC voucher program, which is here, and it's a federal district, which that makes sense. And you have some funding for charter schools at the federal level. But the most important level is the state and local level. About 92% of education funding comes from state and local uh, uh, sources. So I think school choice is going to continue to expand in the places at the level where it matters the most, where most of the money is actually at, at the state and local level. I think you, I think you had shared um, some data on this, but I've seen... Um, some pretty compelling data of parents not waiting and and fleeing the current system. And this probably gets into the those that are capable financially of actually doing this. but what's what's the what's the percentage of parents that are saying, you know what, this isn't working. i'm I'm gonna do something else. Yes, the latest uh, national polling on this was from Gallup, and they estimated that about that the public school system this year is going to experience about a seven percentage point drop in the proportion of students that are in traditional public schools. So before the, the lockdowns, about 83% of families were sending their children to traditional public schools or what we would call government-run uh, public schools. 
And so a seven percentage point drop would be would mean millions of, of students fleeing the system. I think about the three point three and a half million students leaving the system. Uh, but if we look at actual data instead of survey data, just looking at uh, what's what's been happening at the individual state level, several states have reported on this, and it's been a, on average around a three to five percent drop in the proportion of students in the in the public school system this year. That could con continue to 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 go in that direction towards that seven percent that was estimated by Gallup. But what we're seeing right now is about three to five percent. So I wonder if, um, as someone that's grown frustrated with the, the absolute power that teachers unions have, even at the state and local level, they, you know, it's their business, so they have a specific interest in, in being so involved. I wonder if there isn't a way for those parents at the margin to sort of hack the system and, and, and be leaders to show that these alternative ways of educating children actually uh, lead to um, better education and thriving children. Um, it, there is this have and have not thing, mm -hmm. which is, which is frustrating that, that we'll see, uh, the Democrats who love to talk about haves and have nots actually infers that, but talk about, talk about the hacking for if, if a mom is watching this and mm -hmm. she's, she's pulling her hair out right now, um, she needs an alternative and she's willing to pay the price for that. Where does she go? Yeah, there's a lot of different opportunities right now. Um, one of the first things that's, that sprang up that uh, came out of all of the school lockdowns were things called pandemic pods. And if you look on Facebook, one of the groups that started this was actually in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it, it's just called pandemic pods on Facebook. Over 30 or 40,000 families had joined that in just a month of it springing up. So there's, there's more evidence of families seeking out alternatives and I think a lot of it is in your local community finding other families that are seeking alternatives. And the idea of the pandemic pod for listeners is about five to ten students to get together in a household so that families can economize on the cost of home based of home homeschooling. So does you don't have to every family doesn't have to go to work uh, or, or stay home from work full time, for example, if you have this kind of situation where you get together in a household. Other opportunities are virtual charter schools. So charter schools are still defined on the books as public schools that are funded uh, through taxpayer funding. Um, and so families have been fleeing to virtual charter schools as well. So a lot of states do have virtual charter schools on the books. You'd have to look it up in your particular state. But there were, was action from the teachers unions when the, all of this started uh, shaking up in places like Oregon, Pennsylvania, and, and Pennsylvania, where in Oregon, the Wall Street Journal actually reported that thousands of families were blocked from switching to virtual charter schools because the Oregon Education Association lobbied to, to the government to make it illegal to switch to a virtual charter school in order to protect their monopoly. A similar thing unfolded in Pennsylvania where the Association of School Administrators out there uh, lobbied for the same thing, to make it illegal to switch to virtual charter schools. Su but successfully? They got the next best thing. They didn't get, get they didn't make it illegal. They, it was technically legal to do so, but they got it to where if the students switched out of the public, the traditional public school, they wouldn't lose any money for doing so. And the, and the virtual charter schools wouldn't get the resources for educating the child. So while it was technically okay for them to do so, I mean, this is actually might might be a better. This might be even better for the teachers unions in that they get to lose the students and then keep the resources, whereas in Oregon, they were just lobbying to make it illegal altogether. But 
California did something similar to Pennsylvania. The money wouldn't follow the child to the charter school. So a lot of the charter schools that had already admitted hundreds of students were having to put them back on the wait list because they didn't they no longer had the resources to cover the education of the children because of that rent-seeking behavior yeah. uh, from the teachers unions and other groups. Again, haves and haves nots. It's Yeah, uh, this 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 uh this is a problem for families that can't afford the private school tuition and fees. I mean, this these this type of rent-seeking behavior leads to inequities by forcing families that don't have the resources into a system that's not working for them, and this year into a system that's not even open uh, for business, yep. which is a huge problem. And I think a lot of people are seeing this. This might be the one of the only silver linings of the pandemic that people are looking at this situation seeing that there's an uneven power dynamic, there's a huge power imbalance, which is the main problem with K-12 education, this imbalance between the power of the teachers' unions and the public school monopoly and the power that the families have currently, which is not very much. They can kind of complain about things. They could get up and move to another school district, but that's very costly. It's high transaction costs. They can pay out of pocket while still paying for the public schools through the property taxes. But again, the least advantaged families are in the, the least well position to be able to to, to access those alternatives. But uh, you, you asked for other other solutions as well. There are states that already do have forms of private school choice and other systems that fund students directly. Um, so if you look at edchoice.org, uh, it's a think tank that tracks all of the uh, school choice initiatives in, in your state. So you can click on your state and see if they have a program that's available for you. Uh, to have the money follow the uh, follow the child to a private provider of educational services, the um, the uh, pod of of parents sort of, and I assume that somebody just came up with this idea and it's sort of sort of caught on. I don't, was it was it an idea developed by um, wonky types like you, or is it just parents? desperately trying to fix a problem. I think this is one of the greatest um, examples of spontaneous order. So if you're an economics professor trying to teach uh, free market economics, you could, I'm sure a bunch of them going forward are going to point to this example where families, uh, when, when faced with a problem that isn't being solved by the government, i.e. in-person instruction for their children, they're going to find solutions um, very quickly. I mean, you look at that Facebook group, uh, just in like a couple of weeks, they had thousands and thousands of families seeking out alternatives. There was another Facebook group called Learn Everywhere, tens and thousands of families seeking out help, helping each other with with um, uh, just tips and tricks about how to homeschool and how to form these pandemic pods. Uh, you had companies sprouting up uh, to, to, to meet the needs of individual families uh, to, to help them uh, match between the educators and the students to form these pandemic pods. Uh, but this isn't a a completely new phenomenon. The 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 name pandemic pods is new, but we've had micro schools, which are the basic idea of the one room schoolhouse for a long time in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Um, families have been getting together and educating their children in in the in homes for thousands of years. Uh, so, you know, this has happened for a long time, but the need. Was really there this year that yeah. led to families seeking seeking out these alternatives. Yeah, you, you probably know about the revolution in India. Um, I think they're called uh, budget schools, where mm -hmm. where lo localities and you know it's usually some mom that that starts up a, a school that is typically unreachable by the, the 
the horrific government system in India. So it and they, they had to fight to to make that and keep that legal for parents to actually take responsibility. But I love that because the you know I talk about hacking the the system and that top down solutions. I mean I'm I'm more and more skeptical of top down solutions because of the iron rules of of politics. But if parents are allowed to do that, um, it solves a a fundamental problem that I've heard from some of my colleagues who happen to be moms. And they're like, I can't do this alone because they have jobs um, and their boss insists that they show up at work at Free the People. So there's something like this as, as, a, as a version of unschooling of, or a version of homeschooling where they can share the burden. To me, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think another silver lining of the pandemic this year, it's one is people are rethinking the messed up system we have with K through 12 education overall and how we fund it. But a lot of families got a taste of homeschooling in one form or another. You know, some people will say, oh, well, it's not true homeschooling if you're doing the public schooling at home. It's, that's not the same thing as a true, free, unrestricted form of home-based education. But it's it's something. And because more fee- people had experience with with that, I think public perception has gone up in regards to homeschooling. And so EdChoice has done surveys on this every single month since last year. And they're consistently finding that families, the question was, you know, uh, based on your experiences with home-based education as a result of the school shutdowns and COVID-19, how have your views on homeschooling changed since before the pandemic? And families are now about twice as likely or more than twice as likely to say that they now have a more favorable view of homeschooling than they were to say that they now have a less favorable view of homeschooling. Yeah. So the perception is going forward. I, that could lead to fewer calls for regulation of homeschooling going forward because it's not so much of a scary thing for mo- so many people now since they've all had some kind of experiences with home-based education. And so I think that's an, another one of these uh, things that I'm optimistic about. So a lot of people talked about uh, the uh, very famous singer, Billie Eilish, and and she and her brother, um, who was her musical partner as well, um, were unschooled or homeschooled. I don't know what she refers to it at. Um, but I think one of the other things that we might learn in this process is how rigid and one-size-fits-all and intolerant to the special abilities of your child the current system is because some of it just like when you actually try to march them through that regimented mm-hmm. um, process, parents are like, this is stupid. This, this is not what my child needs. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the main that's another one of the main problems with K through 12 education. One of it's a, a, the power dynamics and the uh, the uh, the power imbalance between the producers and the consumers of the service. But another thing is that one size fits none solution that they have to cater to the needs of the median student instead of all individual students. And so, it, you know, one of the arguments is that the comp- competition leads to better outcomes for students. But another argument is that it's just a better match between the educator and the student and the environment and the student. A public school may be rated an, an A in your area, and it may do remarkably well for a lot of the student population, but it might be for particular students who are interested in other things and who learn in different ways and, and who have different uh, priorities. Uh, they they may do better in a home-based setting or at, a, at another public school or another private school or a charter school. And so 
Uh, you know, a lot of people in the school choice debate will say, you know, if you're if you're pro school choice, that means you're anti public school. To which I respond, you know, does does allowing families to shop at whatever grocery store they want mean that you're anti Safeway? I mean, that wouldn't make any sense at all. It just means that you're pro freedom to choose, and you could still choose the public school if that works best for you. Yeah. So tell me about this book. You have a, a new book coming out, and you've probably already made some of these arguments. But for people that actually want to defend the idea of, of educational freedom, um, you've written this. Yeah, it's a school choice myth, a, a co-edited volume with the Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey. The full title is uh, School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. But there are so many arguments against um, the proposal to fund students directly, and none of them hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever when you look at basic logic and the overwhelming evidence on the topic. But uh, we have 14 different authors included in that volume, uh, in addition, uh, and then also Neil McCluskey and myself, who have contributed to the volume. But everybody on that's listening here has heard the main myth against school choice, which is the argument that school choice defunds the public schools. To which I respond, school choice doesn't defund the public schools, public schools defund families. School choice initiatives just return the money to the hands of the rightful owners, uh, which are the families and their children. And they could take the money to the public schools that they want, but they, they should also have the choice to take it to a private school, charter school, or a home-based option. You would similarly think it would be absolutely ridiculous for someone to say that um, allowing families to choose their grocery store defunds Walmart. No one would say that because everybody understands that your grocery money doesn't belong to Walmart. It doesn't belong to Whole Foods either. It doesn't belong to Trader Joe's. It doesn't belong to any other provider of the service. It's meant for your family. Similarly, I argue that education dollars aren't supposed to be meant for propping up and protecting a government monopoly. They're supposed to be for the children. It should follow those children to wherever they're getting an education. And then another response real quick, since that's such a big myth that's perpetuated so much by the teachers union, is that, well, you're arguing that allowing families to choose is going to defund your service. What does that tell you about your confidence in the service that you're providing to families? Why would giving families a choice defund public schools? Uh, the reality is that a lot of the defenders of the status quo understand that when given the option, families will take their children out elsewhere because they know that they're not providing an adequate education and experience overall for uh, so many families. I'm just I'm just pleased to, to learn that you haven't included the much demonized Betsy DeVos in this volume. <laughs> um, and I'm being sarcastic because of, of all the Trump appointees, she struck me as, as, as one of the most productive um, from my perspective. And man, did they tear her apart. It's as if they were protecting well, she, something she, that was she's quite not lucrative. calling for 130 billion dollars uh, in federal investment in K to 12 public schools, regardless of how well they do. I mean, that's the problem. She prioritized the students over the system, and so the system came out really hard against uh, Betsy DeVos, and and, and un unfairly so. Um, but uh, really, I mean, her legacy, her 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 mark in K to 12 education, overall, is that she fought for the students and advocated for the students over the system. And of course, the system and the teachers unions aren't going to like that. I fought the system and the system won. <laughs> um, I think that's how the Marley song goes. Um, so where do we find more of your work? And if people want to dig a little bit deeper, um, give us some resources. Yeah, for my longer form articles, you can look on the Reason Foundation website. And a quick way to do that is just Google. You can Google my name, Corey, 
Uh, if you want to include the last name DeAngelis too, you can, but it's probably not needed. And then the words Reason Foundation, and you'll find my longer form work there. But if you also want to follow me on Twitter, it's just my last name and then my first name, at DeAngelis Corey. Cool. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you so much for having me. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? That's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm-hmm.